0: to this episode of the AEC Engineering and Technology podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping engineering professionals find technology that fits their needs. In this episode, I'll be talking with Ted, CEO of SkyDeploy, a drone service provider based in Canada, about his background and work in drone data collection for the AEC industry. He will address challenges facing the field and the industry's adoption of drone data collection, and will also share insights on parking utilization analysis. Let's jump into today's episode.
1: Ted welcome to the show hey Nick thanks for having me would you be able to start by telling us a little bit more about your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis honestly i'm still trying to figure out what i do on a day-to-day basis because this field is evolving so quickly It all started in around 2017. I was working at Apple at the retail side, but kind of focusing on the business to business uh, customers. And um, my job was to connect companies that needed a solution with other companies that were providing that solution and hopefully introduce some Apple technology in between. And uh, we were starting to get a lot of questions about drones from uh, specifically, mostly in this area from uh, farmers and growers. So I tried to look around and see, you know, who can I connect them with? And I couldn't find anybody always been very passionate about aviation, photography, and data, big nerd. So I said, hey, nobody's filling this need. There definitely seems to be a need here. The technology is looking really promising. Why don't I give it a try? So I started SkyDeploy with uh, a good friend of mine, and we thought that we were going to be you know, all in on a precision agriculture. There's a lot of cash crop around us, a lot of corn, soybean, etc. So we thought it would be a, a fairly straightforward startup to grow. But we very quickly found out that Precision Ag is, is a very big capital play. You can't really just bootstrap yourself and get started. Um, you have to throw big money at it, and that's not what we had. We kind of gave up on that idea, got a little uh, sad because you know it wasn't really going the way that we thought. Uh, but we started getting a lot of requests actually from engineering companies and consultants that uh, had really specific inspection video data that they wanted and we ended up following the money i guess uh, so that's where i am today i'd say probably about 90 percent of my customers are engineers in some capacity and uh what i've noticed is that they understand what they want and what we're able to get them especially nowadays uh, has really good value added and the market's fairly large so right now a little bit of everything is data collection and data analysis and processing and hopefully turning over something of value to them. So I try to do all of those things in some capacity and always kind of learning along the way.
0: And Ted, that's actually just a great lesson in in kind of entrepreneurship and startup culture, right? It's like, this didn't have to be some, you know, enormous, like world-changing idea, right? You simply just saw a need in what you were already doing, figured out that nobody else was doing it, and just started fulfilling that need. And it sounds like it just, you know, it didn't go maybe 100% as you planned, but you guys were able to pivot pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, and that's the great thing about being small and flexible. You can pivot when you see an opportunity and completely change direction. A larger organization can't do that. So the, keeping that in mind, I don't know if we thought about it that way in the beginning. I thought we were probably thinking that we we're going to do this you know, game changing technology and, and, and business. But ultimately, what really matters is that you're doing what you love, because that's going to keep you going when things get rough. You're always looking for opportunities, regardless of the initial mission that you've set. So a lot of luck, a lot of right place at the right time, I think, as well in a lot of these cases. I'm very fortunate to be where I am today with all those conditions. And Ted, let's talk kind of drones and data, right? The
0: pretty much kind of the the overarching piece of, of the interview today. How would you say the challenges in data collection using drones has changed, let's say, in like the past five to
1: six years? It's changed massively, but also in a lot of respects, it hasn't changed at all. So in the beginning, in 2017, 2018, that's where the accessibility really started to uh, open up in terms of finding aircraft off the shelf that we're able to collect and give you usable data. So that was like the Phantom 3, Phantom 4, Mavic Pro. I mean, I think we owe DJI for this whole industry because without that accessibility, we wouldn't be here talking about it. But the reality back then was that in order to make that profitable and uh, be able to scale, there were a lot of technical issues. A lot of the software as well on both sides on the drone to fly the drone and to do what we needed to do with the data was in its infancy. So there was a lot of just rigging things together, hacking to make it work. And ultimately, the end user experience wasn't great either because we weren't really able to share what we were creating as easy as we might be able to today and that's still kind of a challenge but it's improving rapidly so it was the field work I would say that was the biggest challenge initially and then once the field work started becoming more scalable we still had post-processing difficulties and then just now we're getting to this point of convergence where where both of those things are really becoming scalable thanks to a few different factors.
0: That's what you know, we talk with a lot of guests on the show, right? Like that kind of five-year time period where on the surface, it may not look like much has changed in the day-to-day, but I think we're going to start to see the effects of that, right? Like computing and processing power off the shelf, kind of consumer grade at an attractive price point equipment, whether it's drones, 360 cameras, like you said, all of that kind of converging together, which is going to make the next five years really
1: interesting, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on price point. I think that's often overlooked. Like this, We're here because we're saying that we're going to save people money, right? So I think in a lot of cases, that's not always the truth, especially when we're trying to work on the edge and really uh, bring the latest and greatest to the customers. Price has to always be a factor, and that has to be a big part of how we think about approaching customers and making this a success, because that's really the value add is, is achieving more with less.
0: Where have you seen AEC, the industry as a whole, embrace the use of drones for data collection?
1: And what do you think's kind of gotten us to this point? Well, I think drones and AEC were always a great fit because. The AEC world and the individuals within it are fairly familiar with geospatial data already, right? They know what a point cloud is generally, vectorized files, 3D. They know how to navigate around 3D. They know they understand that they're going to be forced to use large amounts of input data to get what they need. So I think the learning curve uh, is one of the, the reasons why AEC is a great first adopter. Of course with mapping with products like drone deploy that made it easier and easier and more scalable but it was always I think destined uh, to work quite well because the the core competencies of the people in the AEC industry are really complementary to the the type of data that we're working with and the type of workflows the field work as well
0: yeah you know, speaking from my own experience right it's just a natural, progression of, you know, using a drone, right, as another tool to be able to capture data. And let's say, you know, like facade restoration, as an example, right? You can now, in some instances, you know, hire a remote pilot to go fly a project for you with very specific instructions. You'd mentioned drone deploy, which I know is one of the more popular providers. But would you say that scalability of not having to worry about the nitty gritty and specifics really helps the end consumer, in this case, the AEC professional, actually
1: utilize drone for data collection? I think it helps adopt the methodologies that drones require, right? It helps get people started if it's easy. But I think there's also a flip side to that. If you're always striving to make it as foolproof and as easy and as less complicated every single iteration as possible then you can be limiting what's possible. So a a great example of that is with photogrammetry, especially more detailed photogrammetry like facade inspections, bridge inspections, these structures that are not, you know, you're not going to be capturing this data just from a top-down view with a simple mission plan. There may be some manual flying. There may be a mixture of smarter drones like Skydio that needs to be used that's where things will still require a fairly high proficiency in a few other aspects such as photography, right? You really have to understand that we're working with generally photos to begin with or videos. And and if the individual doesn't have a very deep and fundamental knowledge of how that works, then they're not going to have a great experience. And there's really nothing that you can do to just make it a one stop, you know, one switch solution. So It helps get the technology in the door. It helps these individuals get started and and understand the value and and draw value out of it for their end users. But I'm careful to say we don't want to push it in that direction too far. Like, we're always going to need to have some expertise and some specific training for the really valuable stuff that's coming around the corner to be feasible and long-term scalable.
0: That's a great point, Ted, because we always say, right, it's like you can't just hire somebody off the street who knows how to fly a drone, expect them to do a facade or bridge inspection, right? Because they're not an engineer, right? They may collect the data, but they may not understand it. And on the flip side of that, right? You can't just expect someone off the street to have the knowledge in the background as essentially right, a skilled photographer and drone operator is what it sounds like a lot of this comes down to. And that that simplification piece is is also a great point because... Maybe there are some projects, right? Like let's just say you're trying to just get a top down view of a parking lot. That's a, gonna be a very different project than like you said, like a you know a long span bridge where multiple angles, flight paths, et cetera are involved. So it, it just it sounds like it just comes down to knowing your project.
1: Yeah, exactly. And knowing the right tool for the job. These are just tools. And each tool has its own use and uh, uh, its own training that's required for that tool. Right. So this is the same. And what I noticed, actually, when I got started in 2017, I thought I was late to the party. That turned out to be completely wrong. What I started to see in 2019, 2020, is a lot of internal programs popping up in these large AEC consulting firms, right? Kind of made sense. Hey, the drones are easy to buy. They're not that expensive. We can get some quick training. Let's just give our guys some drones and build this internally. What I've noticed since then is a lot of these internal teams are being disbanded or they're switching to a more sort of sub-consultancy model. And I think that is because they weren't really set up for success, right? It was kind of a a quick fix. Let's just get them something. These were individuals that probably had other responsibilities at the firm, and those responsibilities didn't go away. This was added on. And you really have to keep up with this technology because it's moving so quickly. So that kind of undermined uh, these internal teams. And I wasn't actually surprised when I started to see a lot of customers that I, I knew had switched to an internal model come back uh, to us and uh, and ask for services as a subcontractor on a lot of projects. And and I think there's going to be a balance there. It's, it's always going to be project-based. And if you're a firm that you're doing all kinds of different projects, yes, some stuff you might be able to handle internally and do it very well. There's always going to be cases where you're going to need some external help. And and uh, for as a drone service provider, I'm happy to hear that. I never discourage uh, someone from starting an internal team as long as they're starting it off correctly.
0: I found success with through my career in AEC firms is having somebody on staff, like maybe call them a technology consultant that understands, right, like drones as a tool or 360 photography or LIDAR, right? They understand the core concepts and fundamentals and can speak to the sub consultants they work with that would actually go out and do the data collection. So there's this bridge between we as an AEC firm know we need the data. And the service provider who knows how to collect it, but maybe not exactly in the way that the firm wants it done. That person that serves as that bridge I found is is really helpful because it's not a huge strain on resources for the firm and still allows kind of
1: that scalability and that outsourcing model. Yeah, exactly. And more recently, I've been involved in a lot of these situations where I've, I've come in as a consultant just to sort of get the project started, give them some guidance so that they're not wasting their time with trial and error. So trial and error can be pretty expensive in this field. And then once they're set, then then off to the races, they can take care of themselves. And I think that's super important to understand because driving adoption, driving awareness is how we all win. A rising tide will lift all boats. And uh, that's the way I think about it when I get into these situations.
0: Let's dig a little bit more into the actual data collection, right? So 3D, everything has been blowing up from BIM to, you know, reconstruction of models, right? So it seems like there's this growing gap between high fidelity 3D data, right, that want, and then the actual ability for service providers to provide it. Can you kind of explain what's going on there and some of the trends you're seeing?
1: The trends that I'm seeing is that we're generally able to create these high fidelity 3D geospatial products at a rate that exceeds the demand for them. And it's always been very puzzling. I think a lot of people are still kind of scratching their heads at this in the industry and saying, like, well, it's, it's been five years, you know, the the tech is really good, the back end, the cloud stuff is really good. Why isn't this being demanded like we thought it would be? I think one of the major hindrances there is our ability to share. When you think about reporting and the type of documentation that goes between AEC individuals, the most common file format I see is PDF. Everyone wants, at the end of the day, some sort of report on a PDF. Why is that? I think it's because PDFs are just easy to share, right? You drop it in an attachment, in an email, fire it off, and you're sure that the other person is going to be able to open it and read it. Things really start to break down with high bandwidth, high fidelity, a lot of polygons, a lot of triangles, just a lot of data. When you're trying to share that, even if you have a fairly robust you know, cloud-based platform, there can be some challenges still. So that needs to really continue to improve for the demands to match uh, our capabilities of creating. Because the value is there. I don't think anyone can deny that high-fidelity 3D data is amazing measurements are to scale It's visual contextual it beats everything else but it has to be easy to share it has to be easy for users to open and users that open it need to understand what they're navigating and how to navigate it and that side of things is kind of fragmented right now there's a lot of different viewers there's a lot of different black box you know cloud platforms that are doing everything in the back end and then just spinning a result so we need a little bit more development on that front for that real convergence to happen because the the fieldwork is improving very rapidly. The skill level in the fieldwork is improving rapidly as well in technology. We just needed to match uh, the demand through kind of making that sharing component a lot easier. I see
0: the same thing, Ted. And I think part of it comes down to is just that office side of the industry hasn't really changed too much in you know the past ten to twenty years beyond, right? Some software programs. but you're right. Like until there's a way where this high bandwidth data can be shared and viewed just as easily as a PDF, a lot of companies and end users are going to struggle using it because it's going to be easier to just revert back to d photos, written text when we know there's a much better alternative out there.
1: Yeah, and I am optimistic about this. The nira.app, I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's the first time that I use something and I was like, wow, this is so much better for sharing because it doesn't depend on an app. It doesn't depend on an account. It's a link, right? That's the closest we're going to get, I think, to just like a simple PDF file and an attachment. User clicks on that link and boom, they see that model. Doesn't matter what device they're on. And in a lot of cases, The real value comes when that that data is accessible everywhere at the edge in the fields under a bridge in a parking structure where you are. You want to check something very quickly. You don't want to go through your email attachments, pop up, you know, scroll, find it. You want to be able to just open it up on your phone, your iPhone six. If you haven't, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe don't upgrade every year like everyone else does. It it just has to work. And if if it doesn't work right away the first time the user gets tired there's a lot of friction there and the adoption suffers because it's not really making their lives any easier we have to make their lives easier for us to win
0: an example you know I'll, I'll pull from yesterday right I was just in the field and I'm sure you've heard you know construction site acquired by drone deploy right so becoming more in the field of interest of drones but I was with another engineer and we were just reviewing some conditions and he was like well how has this changed in the three months since we've been on site and it was incredibly simple to just pull up the app, pull up the location, snap a picture and toggle back and forth between yesterday and three months prior. And on that note, in the same vein, like if we wanna share you know, photography, virtual walks, right? It's generate link, paste into an email and hit send. And it is that painless. And I've really seen some individuals that I've known to struggle with the technology a little bit compliment it because it was just that easy, right? So I'm in full agreement. And it's great to see platforms out there already
1: moving towards that basically easy button solution. Exactly. I fully agree. And, And it happens every day. When you're in the field, you need to look something up. And that's what makes your life easier. That's what causes you to adopt this technology. And speaking
0: of the field, uh, we do a lot of parking, right? So uh, a favorite subject of mine. So why don't we talk a little bit about parking utilization, right? I've seen some of what you've done on LinkedIn. It's really impressive because if you think about some of the things you're trying to accomplish and just doing it by hand as a human, right? It's just this enormous task, but it sounds like you've kind of found this niche and found a couple of ways to be successful within it.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And I honestly don't share too much of it on LinkedIn. It's not as sexy as the 3D models and the videos of the AI in action. So I always have noticed your posts about parking, and it's fascinating to me because I never thought that I was going to be involved in essentially counting cars in parking lots. But one day, just out of the blue, a gentleman from a real estate investment trust, a REIT, uh, here in Canada, uh, they're called Smart Centers. And here in Canada, Smart Centers and Walmart are basically... A joint venture, or they're sort of very tightly knit. All of the Walmarts are essentially their anchor store in these large smart center shopping centers, and they can have upwards of like 4,000 parking stalls at these places, right? You've driven by places like this, and if you ever drive by, take a look at how much of that parking is being utilized. It's almost always 50%, 30% huge open swaths of, of pavement with lines drawn on it, no value at all being generated there. And probably like an environmental issue as well as just soaking up heat and sun all day and, and releasing it. So they reached out to us just out of the blue and they said hey can you guys count cars in our parking lots with your drones we're like okay yeah it seems pretty simple i think we can do some more stuff too maybe we can show you some analytics around where the cars are parking the way they're traveling they're like "No, no 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 just count the cars whatever we're like okay we'll count the cars so we did a pilot project we counted the cars but then we also did all of those other things we created basically heat maps of where the cars were parking throughout the day And then eventually we started to look at the traffic that was moving within the center, the egress points, the drive-throughs within it. And we started to put all that in a geospatial format, like GIS, and we delivered that instead. So they got what they asked for and they got this nice little surprise and delight. It kind of just went viral internally. And it made so much sense because there's so many different components and people and teams that go into managing these structures and managing the business within it every stall is on an agreement somewhere belonging to someone, a tenant generally. So this helped massively throughout the organization in planning, forecasting, and most importantly, they're really using this for intensification. So we started to see a lot of uh, additional pads being erected in these areas where the parking was barely utilized at even the peak. So we started to study these typically in the holiday season where we expected the most vehicles there. And very rarely did we see the utilization break 50%, 60%, even in those times. So it was really eye-opening. And we kind of just been doing that ever since. So that's how it really started. But uh, yeah, I never thought I'd be looking at uh parking lots in this much detail. <laughs> but who knew?
0: I didn't think about the same with garages when I was in college, but let's just talk about like the asset maintenance, right? Because that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis. But to think that, you know, there's hundreds of square feet of just parking stalls, right? Going unutilized, like you said, up, you know, 50% during periods. That's crazy. You could build another building. You could turn it into a green space. It doesn't have to just be this huge thing of asphalt, right? And and now you've got me thinking about right predictive analytics for restoration and maintenance, right? you can kind of determine, you know, how many cycles this asphalt lot is seeing, can you better help the owner prepare a maintenance plan, like one of the best times of the year to work, one of the best times of the day, right? It just goes to show you like how much data can drive decisions where you just didn't have access to it before.
1: Yeah. And we also started to see a lot of anomalies and where the stalls were, full splines of stalls missing that were on the plans, but weren't there in, in reality. And all of that stuff really comes together when you're taking care of such a massive piece of real estate. You put a lot of investment in in getting that place to be as profitable as possible, and and you're leaving a lot of money on the table if you're not taking care of it and if you're not utilizing it to its maximum. In the beginning, I I read a study somewhere, I can't remember where, but initially when Walmart was building their stores, they were planning about six parking spaces per 1,000 square feet and they've been quietly turning that number, that ratio down. So now we're seeing it around four per thousand. And that trend is going to continue. Enter later on self-driving vehicles, EVs, more uh, different modes of transportation that uh, our communities are going to start to adopt. And that I think that number is really going to start to go down. So it's a fairly wide shift, but you need to have that empirical data. And they always knew that this was a problem, that they had too much but they weren't really able to prove it and to really quantify it.
0: A 33% decrease. I mean, that's huge, right? From six down to four. That's really impressive. And I guess, what other insights and discoveries have you made just beyond the the couple that we've talked about? Because it it sounds like you had an idea of how this was going to start, right? But now you're seeing how it's changing as you continue to do the work.
1: We approached it in the most simplest terms initially. Look at the parking utilization. So our data is on a stall by stall basis. So if we have 2000 stalls in the center, we're looking at each stall individually, and we're looking at how many vehicles were in that stall throughout the day. So that can vary. We might study it for three days, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we might study it for a a different uh, span or scope. That's utilization. We also started afterwards to look at vehicles in transit. That gave us a lot of insights on where these vehicles and where these shoppers were coming from. In fact, in one of the calls with uh, Walmart, they have a whole team it's called Spatial Strategy, and this is what they're thinking about all the time. They asked us, it's like, hey, can you tell us uh, that vehicle over there in that spot, Where, which other store was it at prior to coming to walmart and like why were they there first and then came here later where did they go after so there's all kinds of depth that can be extracted from this type of data what the low-hanging fruit was was the utilization the traffic was next drive throughs was after that because drive-thrus are pretty unique in the way that they influence uh what's around them we saw drive-thrus that pretty interestingly, the most efficient drive-thrus are the ones that have the longest queue length. And there's a lot of human psychology that goes in there, but you'd think that they're inefficient because they have all these cars piled up. No, it's that's basically because people know that drive-thru moves fast and they trust that if I see a lot of cars queued up, I'll still be okay and I'll still be able to make my appointment that I'm heading to on the way. So all of these things that come up. Uber Eats, the skip the dishes type drivers that are hanging out around the stores also started to appear. These cars that are just, they're not really parked, they're, they're stagnant for weird periods of time. And then we started looking at parking turnover. So because we have a series, a temporal data set that ranges a few days or or even a week for in some cases, we can then apply uh, AI and machine learning and computer vision to it and detect how long a car has been parked there so for example if we see that car if we're collecting data every 30 minutes we see that car there twice we can pretty safely say that they've been there at least an hour or just over an hour so that started to add more depth to that data so now we're looking at utilization traffic drive-throughs turnover all of these things that may not be valuable for everybody, but there's usually someone in the firm or in the uh, asset owners uh, team that finds it interesting or valuable at some point in their life cycle.
0: It kind of sounds like this is all maybe being wrapped up into right one word and I think we talked about it or Parkalytics, right. Would you say that what we've talked about so far is
1: kind of encompassed under that that moniker? Yeah, yeah. So Parkalytics is something that I've been working on with a fairly small team for a while, just trying to crack this problem. What happened was we're producing this work. We're doing it all with internal tools that we built, you know, very, very hackish, just slapping it together, making sure it works. And it didn't really matter to us how long it it took to make because we weren't doing an insane amount of scale uh, of this work. We were just doing it here and there. And as our reporting started to circulate around, like it would go to municipalities when they were asking for changes. We started hearing from uh, traffic engineers and consultants, and uh, they were asking us, what software are you guys using to do this? This is really cool. Kind of just had like, there's really no software. Like, put it together, a little bit of QGIS, a little bit of Photoshop, like all these tools that in no way can I really train someone to go do it themselves. I would love to, but I can't. So that was the moment where we're like, hmm, why don't we make this a little bit more accessible? There's definitely a need for it. I'm not a huge fan of like subscription services and all of these things. So I decided, you know, what if we take the tools that we built, package it up into a sort of bring your own data type solution, offer it as a cloud-based sort of cloud website, and the end user, they can go collect their own data, they can hire a service provider to collect it, they can hire us to collect it It doesn't really matter. They put it in, and they get the same type of analytics that we've been creating. And that's Parkalytics. So we're still working on it, we're getting probably pretty close to releasing it by the time that this uh, episode goes live. But that's really how it started. And it's the first time that I've been involved in this type of development work, but it's really fulfilling. And I hope that it makes a difference and and people get some value from it.
0: Now you can start to expand the use cases, right? Because you only have so many hours in a day, right? And if you're working for client X, that's looking specifically at their parking lots in front of their big box doors. Well, you're not going to get into traffic studies or parking garages or, or highway, et cetera, right? So now I've kind of seen the same thing where bring your own data approach allows the same underlying principles to help so many more people because you're not as limited by the collection
1: and, and have a lot more kind of hands bringing it all together. Yeah. And from the start, we always thought about the collection as being the main pain point. But what we've basically been doing the whole time is using the simplest drone, the simplest uh, method of getting aerial images we can find. And that's generally been the sub 250 gram market, right? So they're very affordable. That's the fastest growing segment in the drone industry. I mean, here in Canada, you don't need a license for it. You don't need any certification for it. It's It's fairly harmless. You can fly over people. We designed it with that in mind right off the bat. We need to make the data collection super duper simple and accessible. And that will lead to that bring your own data type solution uh, to be more accessible to everybody else. And in some cases, this may be drone service providers that want to add this as part of their service offering. And that's completely fine, too. They can go ahead and do that. At the end of the day, all we really care about is just getting decent data in and getting that value added report out to them so that they can do whatever they need to do with it.
0: We've talked about car counts, we've talked about traffic studies, we talked a little bit about like inspections, bridges, facades, what other applications are you seeing in the AEC beyond what we've already discussed?
1: the field work is where we're going to see the most change in the next few years. I actually part-time I'm a professor at uh, at a college here and and we have a drone program. It's a one-year postgraduate program. I teach a couple courses there and one of the courses is flight training. So just flying drones, right? So that used to be something that you really needed to spend a lot of time on. And that's going away. I think the data collection, the autonomy that we're seeing in a lot of these packages is taking that skill ceiling that was fairly high, really bringing it low. And with the advent of docs and and all of these types of uh, permanent uh, solutions, I think that's gonna have a huge impact on the adoption moving forward. I was talking to a few different customers. It really doesn't matter what the asset is. If we can make it easy and remove the human factor in the piloting and the field work, then the data where the, all the value really is, that's gonna really start to shine. It's really gonna become cheaper, more affordable to use, and the adoption is gonna continue to, to grow and all the nice, you know, technologies that go around it will flourish. So I think that's what we're really gonna start to see in the next few years, more autonomy more drone-in-a-box solutions that are actually valuable and work well, and more end users adopting that methodology. And that's kind of the
0: thesis of the whole podcast,
1: right? Because it's let these
0: very talented technical professionals do what they do best, right? Does your senior principal need to be out on a facade, you know, learning how to fly a drone for the first time? No, right? There's somebody else that can help them accomplish that task, right? It's no different than say like a drafts person or a modeler who has a very specific skill set and that is useful to let's say like an engineer, they're talented in their own right, but they're just helping each other out. You said it really nicely where that that skill ceiling is dropping. And then that just makes the data collection more accessible, both from a time perspective, but also a price point perspective to end users in AEC.
1: Yeah, and we still have a long way to go. Like, This isn't just around the corner. This is going to take some time to really roll out. Look at chat GPT. That shouldn't scare anyone. That type of technology is not going to take your jobs. It's going to make you more efficient, and it's going to give you more time to focus on things that you weren't able to focus on and grow without it. So that's the same thing here. The data collection can be simplified. We don't need that super highly skilled engineer wasting their time out in the field. I'm sure they're still going to need to do some field visits, but they are best used elsewhere. And their skill set is is more valuable in other parts of the project. And I'm sure that's going to be welcomed by, by everyone at a firm.
0: Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or comments on the future of
1: drones and data in AEC? I'm just doing my best to predict where this is going. No one really knows. There's also a lot of geopolitical situations that may affect all of this. Think about semiconductors. If we don't have a good, solid supply of semiconductors and a very reliable supply chain, the whole idea kind of breaks down. You need some compute on the edge. You need uh, chips that are fairly specialized. So hopefully everything is stable and the dreams and hopes that we have for this industry can continue in the trajectory that they're going we have to be careful because it's, it can be, it's pretty fragile in a lot of cases. And uh, we have to be aware of that and not go all in right away. Make sure that uh, you're doing it right and, and it makes sense for whatever you're trying to do with it.
0: Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. For me, right, this has been very insightful because it's like you're unlocking a world of possibilities for an entire industry that. I frankly had no idea about. So if our audience wants to learn more from you
1: and kind of what you're doing, what's the best way for them to find you? I'm most active on LinkedIn. Uh, So reach out to me there, follow or connect. And uh, if if you ever want to jump on a call with me, I'd love to have these calls because I love to learn about the use cases and the end users and the problems that they're having. So that would be the best place. Check me out on LinkedIn.
0: We here at EMI make the same offer. We're here to help, right? We'll try to connect you with individuals like Ted or try to help you out in the best way we can. So please don't hesitate to reach out to Ted, reach out to myself. We'll do our bells to help you out. But again, Ted, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nick. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at aectechpodcast.com. There, you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode as well as any links to resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in all of your engineering and technology endeavors.